Thank you, Jason, for reading God's Word for us. Uh, good morning, ARPC at Bishan. We continue our series of studies from the book of Exodus, and today we will be looking at the uh, infamously called the uh, Golden Calf Passage. So I encourage you to leave your Bibles open at that uh, portion of the passage for today as you listen to the sermon. Now, when I was young, I aspired of becoming a lawyer. And that's because I grew up watching the TV series Law and Order, The People's Court, and then some John Grisham films like The Pelican Brief and A Time to Kill. What do I like about lawyers? Well, it's not the suits and the ties that impressed me. What impressed me was how lawyers, defense lawyers, how they would come up with brilliant arguments, so brilliant that juries would be swayed to let the convicted, in the end, escape the gallows. Now, when we look at Exodus chapter 32 this morning, we see that God's people, they badly needed a lawyer. They badly needed a very good defense lawyer. Why? Well, it's because the nation has just committed a very serious breach of trust. And what kind of breach was it? And how serious was it? Now, we all know that a few chapters back, they swore to be faithful to the Lord. We read that three times they uttered, whatever the Lord tells us, we will obey, three times. Their verbal promise led to the ratification of the covenant that God made with them. We read that sacrifices were offered, blood was sprinkled on the altar and onto the 70 elders representing the people. We read that there was also a meal to celebrate the covenant. But while Moses was up on the mountain, in the mountain, waiting for the uh, certificates, the uh, covenant stipulations and sanctions to be engraved on tablets, while Moses was up there, the people below cheated. They cheated. They two-timed God. They made gods for themselves. You can actually call it honeymoon adultery. Because a wedding just took place, and during the honeymoon period, one spouse had an affair. That was what Israel did. And it was a serious breach of trust. Because the husband who did everything to rescue them from slavery, provided them gold and silver, who fed them in the desert, who promised them a good long life in the promised land, in the land of milk and honey, that husband was God. So how did God respond to Israel's honeymoon adultery, to their breach of trust? Well, we read the Lord, He was angry. He was angry enough to disown them. First slide comes up. In verse 7, He tells Moses, And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. Now you look at this line and you realize God used to call them his people, didn't he? When he sent Moses to them in Egypt, God's message to them was, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. You read that in Exodus chapter 6 verse 7. 
When he sent Moses to face Pharaoh and to convince Pharaoh to release them, his message to Pharaoh was, let my people go. Several times, let my people go, let my people go. And so whose people were the Israelites? Well, they were the Lord's people. But now, God disowns them. He leaves them to Moses and calls them your people. It's like an angry parent telling the other, your son or your daughter. Or worse, it's like a cheated husband who tells his father-in-law, your daughter. Or a cheated wife who tells her mother-in-law, your son. Oh, God was angry. Angry enough to disown the people he rescued for himself. He is also angry enough to give up credit for what he's done for them. Didn't God tell them, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt? Now he is angry enough to say, well, forget what I've done for you. No, I was not the one who brought you out of Egypt. Moses, it's you. You brought them out. So God is angry enough to denounce, to not take responsibility of his rescue of them. Thirdly, God is angry enough to recall the sins of a wicked generation. And he's angry enough to associate Israel with this generation. So God tells Moses, your people have corrupted themselves. Now, the last time the word corrupt appeared or was used to describe man, it was descriptive of the generation that Noah belonged to. We read in Genesis chapter 6, verses 11 and 12, the earth was corrupt in God's sight. It was corrupt, for all flesh has corrupted their way on the earth. Corrupt, corrupt, corrupt. God destroyed, we read, that corrupt generation through a flood, save for Noah and his family. Now, which generation faces the danger of obliteration? It's the present generation whom God describes as corrupt. So now, friends, you know how angry God is. And like a friend venting his anger to another friend, he vents out at Moses. And he says, verse 8, They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. God was angry that the nation quickly broke faith. They quickly trashed God's commandments. Now, if you ponder upon it, the nation committed breach of trust on many counts, actually. Firstly, you read that they broke the first commandment, which is, you shall have no other gods beside me. Along with it, they broke the second commandment, which is that you are not to make for yourself a carved image and bow down to them and serve them. Well, you could also say that they broke 
the third commandment. When Aaron, Moses' brother, associated the Lord with the calf. Aaron carved the calf, overlaid it with gold, and then he announced to the people that they shall have a feast, not to the calf, but to the Lord. That, my friends, was using the Lord's name in vain, breaking the third commandment. So the nation committed breach of trust on multiple counts. Now, if you do not get just how sickening it might have been for God, perhaps this analogy would help. Israel, my friends, is like a spouse who is in bed with another lover. Israel was the spouse who replaces the wedding photo with the photo of the lover. And then he addresses the lover using the same endearing term, darling or dear. And then he brings her to his wife's favorite restaurant. And then he buys her lover, or rather his lover, the same perfume he gives his wife. Isn't that just sickening? That is perhaps what's happening here. Israel, two-time God, he gives her love to the calf. He addresses the calf, Lord. And he offers the calf the same sacrifice that they offered to the Lord. And mind you, in all these, guess what? Israel was using God's resources to fund their adultery. They were using the gold, the silver that God had given them. And so God, the jealous husband, had every reason. He had every right to be angry. He is angry enough to disown them. He is angry enough to dissociate from them. He is angry enough to call them corrupt because they committed the breach on many counts. Now, how else did God respond? Well, moving on, he calls them a stiff-necked people. What do you mean by stiff-necked? It's another word for stubborn, pig-headed. See, stiff-necked was used to describe a stubborn ox that did not want to follow the straight line that the farmer is trying to direct it. The straight line that the farmer had wanted when plowing the field. And so the Lord laid down a righteous path for Israel to follow. And that required trusting the Lord. But their constant testing of the Lord showed that these bunch have always been a stiff-necked bunch. God is angry enough now to give them up. Just like the farmer returning the hired ox, the stubborn ox back to its owner because the animal refuses to obey. God is angry enough to give him them. And he is angry enough to wipe them out. Next slide, verse 10. He tells Moses, Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make you 
that I may make a great nation of you. Oh yes, God is really angry. He tells Moses, leave me alone. Leave me alone to destroy them. Now friends, if God tells you to leave him alone because he is angry, <laughs> you would leave him alone, wouldn't you? I mean, that's what you do with your boss. You go to the office, the boss is upset, and he tells you, leave me alone, you're gone in seconds. And uh, it happens also in the home, doesn't it? When mom is upset and she says, leave me alone, you tell the children, leave mom alone, she's upset. But when the angry God tells Moses, leave me alone, why did not Moses disappear? Why did he disappear? Why did he not just leave God alone? Well, the answer is this. Because God should not be left angry. God should not be left angry. One does not leave God angry. Why? Because it is just too dangerous to leave him with his anger unresolved. Now Moses has all the while been silent, notice. Did you notice when God vents out his anger? And so commentators are very helpful to explain to us that actually in Hebrew narratives, whenever a speech was made, and then it was followed by the phrase, and the speaker said, and the speaker said, whenever a speech was made, and then it was followed by, and the speaker said, that is a hint to the reader that there was a pause between the first speech and the subsequent speech. And so when God tells Moses how the people have turned aside, how they've worshipped the calf, how they've attributed God's work to the calf, and then we read, and the Lord said, I have seen this obstinate people. There was actually a pause in between. It's a big pause where Moses could have said something, where Moses could have responded to God, except Moses did not. That's why we read, and the Lord said. Why did Moses remain silent? Well, it's because what God said was true. What God said was irrefutable. God's charges, they all had basis. The evidence was damning. Leave me alone, he tells Moses. Leave me alone to destroy them so I may make a great nation of you. But you see God, or rather you see Moses, he did not leave God alone in his anger. Finally, he responds. He has to, because God's angry offer to make a great nation out of Moses is an invitation for Moses to respond. And Moses, he makes a brilliant argument like a brilliant defense lawyer. What does he say? He implored the Lord. Verse 11, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out 
of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand. Why does the Lord's wrath burn against his people? You and I know why, don't we? They broke faith. They disobeyed commandments. One, two, three. They committed adultery while on honeymoon. We all know why. And yet Moses asks, why? Now the rabbi, David Foreman, explains, and this is very helpful, that there is actually a distinction between the two Hebrew words for the word why. The Hebrew words madua and lama. Let me explain that. Madua, the madua why, is used to ask the scientific why. Say, why is the sky blue? Scientific why. Give me a reason behind this. Explain. That's the Hebrew word madua for why. Meaning, why what past occurrence caused the present state? That's the madua why. The other why, the lama why, has a different usage. It's actually a contraction of two words, la and ma. La is translated as the preposition to, T-O. And ma is translated as the interrogative pronoun, what. So lama actually means to what or for what purpose. Now, Singaporeans don't need to use ma dua or lama because you know how to use your whys, don't we? When you wanted to ask for a reason, you say, why ah? But then when you want to ask for a purpose, you say, for what? So we're very good in distinct, in, in distincting or rather in uh, making distinctions between the two whys. So when Moses asked God, why does his anger burn? Moses wasn't asking the scientific why, what's the reason behind your anger. We all know the reason behind it. He wasn't asking what happened that caused the Lord to be angry. Instead, Moses was asking for what? But of course, not in that tone. He was asking to what end is your anger going to bring or to lead? He asks the Lord, for what purpose does his anger serve? What would God's anger achieve? Secondly, Moses asked God to consider that the object of his anger was his people. And so he tells God, why does your anger burn against your people? It's the very people who, with God's almighty hand, he has brought out of Egypt. And then he convinces God to consider what his anger would achieve. And how does he do that? Well, firstly, he talks about the bad guys, the Egyptians. And he says, what would the bad guys say among themselves? They'll probably say, TSK, TSK. God is after all evil. He slaughtered them, all of them. Secondly, what about the good guys? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
the good guys to whom the Lord made the promise to make descendants so many and to inherit the land that the Lord is giving them. Moses, in asking, why does your anger burn? He is convincing God to rethink the purpose of his anger. And by the way, note the brilliant argument Moses presents. Moses did not reason, notice, as many of us may have, you know, when we studied this in our DGs. Moses did not say, come on, look, Lord, I was away from the people for 40 days. And uh, it is not unreasonable for them to suspect that I might have died. Moses didn't say that. Moses didn't tell them it is not unreasonable, unreasonable for them to feel insecure or fearful that they've been left without a leader. Some of us may even do that. Moses did not even plead PTSD, post-traumatic stress syndrome, or the uh, psychological damage that 400 years of slavery must have caused these people. Some defense lawyers do that. So they say the employer has, is stressed at work. That's why she comes home and she beats up her mate. Moses doesn't do that. He doesn't defend the people. He does not appeal for the people. Why? Because he knows that they are plain guilty. Moses instead appeals for God. He appeals for his name's sake. He appeals for God's faithfulness. He does not leave God angry, but he argues, why should the Almighty God, who rescued his people for himself, burn his anger against them? Why should the bad guys mock God for his rightful anger? And why should the good guys be denied the promise just because of God's rightful anger? It was right for God to be angry, Moses saying. But consider, to what end will it achieve? Moses appeals to God's faithfulness to his people. To Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, and even to the present generation, their descendants who are now at the desert. You know, I read this, it reminds me of the movie, like I just mentioned, A Time to Kill. How many of you have watched that? It's a very good movie. Defense lawyer by the name of Jake Briggins was trying to convince an all-white jury to not give the death penalty to Carr Lee. Carly was the black man who killed two white men for raping his 10-year-old daughter. And so in court, the defense lawyer, Jake, in his closing arguments, he asked the jury to close their eyes as he narrated in detail the rape of Carly's daughter. He tells them they took turns raping her killing her tiny womb, then tied her up, threw beer cans at her, and when they're done with their sport, they threw her little body over the bridge 
to the bottom of the creek. And then he asks them, can you see her? Can you picture her? And then he ends by saying, now imagine she is white. That's why I love long movies. It was a brilliant closing argument because it did not seek to defend Carl Lee's action. Instead, it sought to defend the jury's impartiality. Moses did not spend his energies defending the unfaithful people. Instead, he defended God's faithfulness. Moses pleads, slide comes up, turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of. He had spoken of bringing on his people. Now, I know that many people may have spent a lot of time discussing these two verses on the, uh, what is called the immutability, immutability of God. The doctrine that God does not change. So if we insist that God did not change his mind actually here, we run the risk of suggesting that God's anger was just for show. It was just, what's the word that they use for show? Like a movie. Right? On the other hand, if we insist that God changes his mind, we run the risk of suggesting that God's plan is actually open because his plans are dependent upon our parent, our prayers. Now, friends, we need to avoid these two extremes and miss the purposes of these two important verses in this account. Firstly, its purpose is to show us that God's anger against sin is real. Slide comes up. God is really angry at sin. And though today we may not see it manifested in ways we expect, we read in Romans, for instance, that the Apostle Paul says that the wrath of God is being revealed against all godless and wicked men who suppress the truth about God. And how does God reveal his wrath and his anger upon them? He gives them over to their sins, to be piled up for the day of God's wrath. God's anger against sin, my friends, is real. Secondly, a mediator is badly needed to placate God's anger. Next slide. We needed a mediator badly to, to, to try to calm down God's anger. And Moses did a very good job here in pleading God to relent from sending disaster. He appealed to God's faithfulness for his name's sake and for the people's sake. Thirdly, what these two Bible verses teach us is this. We learn too that God's anger, which is real, lasts only for a moment. That is, if you were to contrast it with his mercy, with his love, with his faithfulness. In fact, in the next sermon, we will learn in Exodus chapter 34, next slide, that the Lord, 
the Lord. He is a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. I suppose that we probably see a snippet of God's momentary anger and lasting love. Sometimes we see it from our parents, don't we? So parents, parents do get angry. They do say, leave me alone. Leave me alone because I'm going to throw out all the stuff and kick my son out from the house. It happens. But then we also see that the parent relents, don't we? And when we see that, you and I do not say, see, 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 it's just for show. You don't say that. Instead, you say, ooh, that was close. The parent, he was really angry because the son's sin was serious. But the parent's anger was only for a moment. His love, his patience, his forgiveness is lifelong. Now, isn't that what God is like? His anger is real, but it lasts only for a moment. In contrast, his mercy, his love, his steadfast love, his grace, they last a lifetime. So how did the Lord respond to his people's unfaithfulness? How did the Lord respond to their breach of trust? Well, God was angry, angry enough to disown his people. He was angry enough to dissociate himself from them. He was angry enough to call them corrupt. He was angry enough to wipe them all up. He was angry enough to, to, uh, to uh, restart, reboot with Moses. He was angry enough to wipe them like the previous generation through a flood. But, but he is faithful. He is faithful enough to stick to his promises. And so he relented and did not proceed to destroy, to destroy them as he had intended. So friends, Never leave God angry. Why? Because his anger is real. He is angry against sin. Do something quickly about your sin. And so we read Moses did not stop at pleading God for a stay. We read that when he went down the mountain, he smashed the two tablets of the covenant. Yes, in anger but to press a point, which is that the people have really broken the covenant with God. So unless they mend their ways, unless they repent, the tablet would be meaningless. The ark, the tabernacle, the sacrifices, they would just be artifacts. Moses, we read, he destroyed the image because idolatry has to be rid of. He ground it to find dust 
and made them drink it as a punishment, but also perhaps to remind them as they were drinking it, you know, powdery water, to remind them where did the water really come from? Is it from the calf that provide you water in the desert? Or was it from the Lord himself? Moses rebuked Aaron, his brother. Moses had 3,000 unrepentant people slaughtered, 3,000 who were behaving immorally because of idolatry. Because God's anger is real and that he is angry against sin. So Moses dealt with the people's sins quickly. And you know, if one thinks that he was harsh towards the people, think again. Because Moses, he declined God's offer to reboot the nation with him. And when he meets God again, he pleads him to forgive the people at his expense. Next slide. Verse 32. He tells God, But now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. You read this and you wish we have a leader like Moses, don't you? One who did not look after his own interests, but the interests of God's people. One who declined God's offer to take away all the obstinate sheep and say, I'll give you a new church, all goody goodies. Do we have such a leader like Moses? No, we don't. But we have a better one. His name is Jesus, God's son. He did not leave God angry with us, nor did he just placate God's anger, but he took it away. He took it away through the offering of his very life as an atonement so that we, the obstinate ones, need not perish but find forgiveness in Jesus. Jesus is the better Moses given by God in keeping to his promises. Don't leave God angry. Deal with your sin and find forgiveness and new life in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, you have every right to be angry at us because of our sins. You have every right to wipe us out from the face of the earth because we rebelled against you. And yet in your goodness, in your steadfast love, mercy, and faithfulness, you gave us your son, Jesus, who took our sins on the cross and removed your wrath away from us so that we may have new life in him. Oh, may we follow and love the Lord Jesus. He saved us from sin. He saved us from wrath. And he empowers us to live a new life for you. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.